Hello everyone, Rainy here with a third straight week of solo role-playing goodness in playing with myself on the internet, the colossal solo play series I've been doing here towards the end of 2022. I do believe we're going to have a stream on December 30th, which means that we will not do four straight weeks of Colossal, but I do think we're getting to a really interesting place in this story. I'm hoping we're maybe around the halfway point, maybe we can end it sooner. I do want to do quite a few different games if I'm going to keep up this solo series as a option in the off weeks that we're not streaming. I'm thinking if you listen to this, weigh in on any of our social medias or email us at dmsetterdark at gmail.com. Let me know what you think an appropriate length is. Obviously, I like to play until it feels good, reaches what I think is a satisfying conclusion. But again, most of DMs After Dark is us trying to have one neat, concise arc that encapsulates a game and we feel represents it in its purest form. So that way you have an example of gameplay and are exposed to a game that you may find you very much enjoy and want to pick up and try with your friends, or in the case of the solo games, play by yourself, which is awesome. So I don't want them to go too long, but I do think I want to give it the appropriate amount of time to feel right. Part of me was thinking 13 episodes, but at bi-weekly that would be half the year, right? If I did it weekly, 13, I could get four games in in a year. But, you know, I think we're going to feel it out. We're going to see what feels right. In the meantime, I'm thinking somewhere in the 5 to 10 episode range. And this will be episode 5. This is going to be a big episode. So why don't we get into the recap and realize what it is we're going to be doing. Last time in Colossal, Marco, Berger, and Alice continued their exploration of the canyonlands around Rust Gorge. They found a bandit camp that had very violent bandits that intended to kill our protagonists for having stepped onto their territory, and a pretty brutal fight ensued where we saw some significant wounds for the first time in this entire campaign that brought Marco's stats down pretty low. We got the combat score down to one, and we got the exploration score down to, I think, two. And eventually we have gotten through what we have decided rules-wise here for this series. One Night's Rest recovers one stat point worth of wounds. So we've gotten his stats back up to three exploration, three combat, which is his max combat score. So knowing we're going into this fight, this quest, this hunt for the Hunter's Guild, there is a flying rook who is dropping rocks at hunters who have been sent to face them in the past, and these rocks are damming up an outlet from the reservoir that sits inside of a mesa. There is an island in the middle of this pond, this reservoir, and the rocks that they are dropping are causing a blockage, which is lowering the water level, reaching these towns and cities in the Canyonlands. Also, during our last exploration phase, a familiar face from the Crackways caught up with Marco, Alice, and Berger, and threatened them to stay away from the plateau, the symbol, the glyph that is on Marco's familial map. With the discussion with Drea back in Rustgorge, the leader of the Hunter's Guild, Marco learned is prominently featured on the side of a plateau, and 
lawless, dangerous things happen out there. Not many people know. Hunters don't take jobs out there. Or if they do, it wasn't talked about with Marco. And obviously Marco's calling for this entire campaign is to explore the Roomlands and find out what those symbols mean and why they're in the different rooms. So this warning from Yaleris, the man, the armed class who we met in the Crackways, I don't know if it's going to affect Marco. I don't think it's going to stop him, but it definitely feels like it's thickening the plot, if you will. We flipped on the oracle tables at the end of the last session and found out that Yaleris is actually working undercover for the Hunter's Guild, attempting to bring down this rook factory smuggling of rooklings, whatever's going on out there, attempting to gather intel on it and bring it down from the inside. So things are getting pretty juicy. But first, let's get into this and let's go ahead and try and beat our first quest, this flying rook on an island in the middle of a lake, which sits on top of a mesa absolutely crazy prompt and I love it and to make things even crazier we are using the rules from the Roomlands book which is fighting within a rook to attempt to bring it down so without further ado let's get into it morning comes and we see Marco and Berger doing their morning routine. I think Marco is probably stretching, gathering all of his exploration gear and getting his things in order. He's a very meticulous, quiet, introspective young man who has a way of doing things. We see Alice. She is chatting it up and doing her stretches, swinging her rope. She has repaired the damage that she took to her kind of rope harpoon bazooka thing that we decided she has as the armed class. But... It's still a little shorter than she likes it, so I think what we see, just to make this an option moving forward, is we see Marco and Berger going through their morning routine. Berger is probably practicing their rumble magic as well as their ice magic, trying to do both, maybe combine the two. Marco is taking notes and offering advice, and we see Alice tries on the helm that we took off of the lead bandit from that bandit camp. And we talked about it before, it maybe had like a couple visor-like 360 spinning circles on this helm, and she puts it on and it whirs to life and she kind of gasps, oh, oh, this is, this is weird. Oh, I don't like this. And she stands up, she kind of gets dizzy and she takes it off and she says, Marco, you might want to try this though. Berger looks different in this. And Marco raises an eyebrow. Um, okay. And we see Marco try on this helm. Again, we decided this was a rumble magic helm. Berger just got rumble magic due to an upgrade at the Lapidarist back in Rust Gorge. So Marco tries this helm on and we see the eye visors start spinning around, kind of trying to basically triangulate and locate whatever it is Marco's trying to focus on and look at. Without any kind of visual, these aren't actual see-through portions. I think what it's doing is basically giving Marco that sort of vibration tremor sense that we talked about before that the bandit captain used to attack before any of the other bandits even saw Marco, Alice, and Berger when they were ambushed back at the bandit camp. So for a second, Marco is also disoriented, but he quickly 
locks on and sees Berger. Berger and his little rook body stand out quite prominently in whatever this visual looks like, how he is orienting himself. And it doesn't take long before Marco kind of finds that equilibrium. We see Berger in their small little rookling form with their big boxy fists, and you can see latent magic actually flowing throughout his little rookling body. Maybe maybe it's gears, maybe it's kind of internal workings and machine parts like we found in that lucky find from last session, but I think more than all of that, Marco just kind of notices the glyph that's part of Berger, and it very distinctly sticks out in this visual. Again, what that means, we're not really sure, but I think that as part of the calling, it's an interesting way to save a little nugget, uh, some potential for later. Anyway, as they wrap up their morning camp, they are sitting at the toe of the slope that leads up to this mesa. There's a waterfall that at other times may be absolutely roaring and gushing water out into the river that eventually winds its way towards Rust Gorge and other settlements, but right now, it's not as strong as it used to be. There isn't a path, per se, up this plateau to this mesa to this reservoir, but we see that little montage scene of the three of them climbing when they can, traversing narrow ledges where they must, And eventually we get that very classic scene, right, of just arms coming up over the side of a cliff and the huffing and the puffing and the, okay, one more. And they push each other up and then they reach down and the two of them heave the heavy little rookling, the little stone rookling body of Berger up that final bit. And they are standing at the edge of this mesa and they turn around and they see trees, vegetation all around the rim of this reservoir. There is a spring somewhere in the middle. You can actually almost see all of the water rippling out from the center. However, also in the middle of this reservoir is kind of... An island is a weird way to describe it. I think it looks almost like jagged, striated sandstone, that orange, the reds, the... the, beiges, they're just kind of sticking up in almost like it looks like a bloom of a flower formation in the middle of this reservoir. And while they're expecting a massive-sized rook somewhere that obviously should be pretty easy to find now that they're up here, they don't notice it at first because the scene is just so breathtaking. And there's a tower again on this island. I I think it's less of a tower and more of like a natural men here, like those just standing stones, those tall, vertical, massive pieces of stone. And at first, Marco, Alice, Berger, they don't they don't see this rook. But then it begins to take off, having noticed their presence. And I'm trying to think of a flying rook. Obviously, there's some art in the books where they are literally just floating But in my mind, I have a very specific reference point that I think just sounds really cool. So we're going to go with it. I actually had to look up what they were called, but as a kid, I played a lot of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And in Hyrule Field, there were these flying 
creatures that had, they almost looked like they were, I don't know if flowers is the right word or like a piece, like a pineapple. And they would come out of the ground and they had like these propellers on the bottom of them. Apparently they're called pea hats, but I, I imagine this rook kind of looks like that. It is a, it looks like a tower of a castle or a turret, but underneath it widens out at the base and these large propeller like maybe it's magnetic, natural magnetism, some kind of magic, what have you, they, the rocks that make up this bloom around this natural men here that shoots out from the middle of this island, in the middle of this reservoir, they begin spinning around the bottom, the base of this rook as it takes off to the sky, and we're going into combat. So, as always, with combat in Colossal, we're going to flip cards to build our opponent. Now, this goes the same way, even when we're going to choose to fight within it, but there are going to be additional rules. Let's first make the rook and then figure out if we need to do anything else as far as prepare before we attempt to fight it a little unconventionally. So when we are creating a rook for an opponent, we're going to flip a few more cards than we have been for the bandits. We're going to make a massive rook the size of a large house or a huge building. I think this one is quite large, larger than a house. Again, we talked tower, turret size of a castle with these propeller-like rocks just swinging around at its base, allowing it to fly. First, we're going to flip to find out the magic type and the body type. The first card we flip is a spade. It actually has no magic whatsoever. So that's interesting. Maybe that's why it's resorting to grabbing and throwing rocks, right? It doesn't have magic to shoot out at these hunters that have been sent against it. It has to use natural means. So there's no magic to this rook. And then the body type is we flipped a three of diamonds. The suit doesn't matter. A three between a one and a seven means it is an attack type rook. It is highly offensive, coming in close and fast with damaging melee attacks or long range weapon attacks. I think this rook has an arm that comes out of the bottom of it. So once it starts flying, it can dip low and that arm will grab onto a rock and fling it at someone. It can also grab onto hunters and fling them. It can also slap anybody away if they're trying to climb it or mount it or get inside it like we are going to. So I'm giving it a basically a retractable kind of bendable arm. Oh no, I've made this thing even scarier. Oh, we're going to flip a card to see if it is a ranged or melee attack. I flipped low, so it is ranged, so that makes sense. Again, it's not melee. This thing flies. Why does it need to be melee? So, yeah, we have the arm that's going to throw things. And lastly, we're going to flip for the reward that we will get for defeating it. And we flip an ace of diamonds, which says weapon. So we will get a weapon out of defeating this rook. In addition to the, I believe, two treasures we were promised for completing the quest. All right. So... We have a non-magical rook that uses ranged attacks, attack type body, and we will get a weapon out of defeating it. Now that we have created our rook, we get to go into the fight. Now massive rooks like this have a combat score of 5. Now I know we just went through a 5 card enemy battle because of the 5 lone bandits, which normally would only get 1 for their combat score. But this is going to be quite a bit different because this is one creature attacking five times per round. And it's going to get even more complicated when we factor in the fighting from within. 
So before we start, let's go over the rules for fighting within a rook. Internal combat rules are pretty interesting. So when inside of a rook, it's going to do everything it can to get me out or throw me off or what have you. The important thing is that I need to maintain a hold. Now, in order to do this, I only have one chance in the battle to get inside of the rook. And every turn I'm in there, I need to flip a card to make sure I stay in there. To defeat a rook internally, the last blow of combat must be delivered from the inside. I can decide what that looks like, and I think I have an idea, but let's see. The important thing is when I get on board, I need to choose one of my attacks to be my onboarding attack. Then, before each attack after I've boarded, I need to draw a card, and it needs to be higher than the card that I used to board. So obviously I want to use a low card, but if I'm using a low card, that means I probably lost that combat round, right? So I've taken a wound, or I straight up didn't get in. So it's it's kind of a gamble. And it needs to be the final blow struck. So if I get in early, I need to stay in for round after round after round. If I wait to try and get in late, I might not have the opportunity. And every round that I'm inside of the Rook, I have to flip a card and it determines the attack type to get me out. How they go about trying to defeat Marco or get them, you know, get whoever's inside out. We are going to worry about that when we get there. Standing at the edge of the reservoir, our three protagonists stare up as this rook takes to the skies, massive stones swirling around in a circle beneath it as it hovers, leans forward, and begins making its way towards them. An arm comes out from the bottom of this and scoops, skims along the water, and eventually comes up with a boulder roughly the size of burger themselves, or maybe even larger, and the three know what is in store for them. They've planned for this a little bit. The plan is to scatter and use each other as opportunities to get close and get inside. Marco has a plan. As we've done for other combats, I'm going to flip our four cards for Marco, who gets three, and one additional for Alice kind of homebrewing the rules for two-player combat, but I think it's better. So we're going to flip our four cards that we're going to have at our disposal right at the start, and we're going to flip one by one as the rook is going to get their attacks. Now they're going to get five cards, so again, similar to last time, there's going to be at least one time in the first round of this combat where it gets a free hit off on someone. Let's find out what happens. Here are our four cards. Marco flips. Oh no, a five of clubs, a jack of hearts, a king of clubs. Oh, we got some high cards. And Alice flips a five of spades. So we have a couple low cards and we have a couple high cards. So we can potentially make some progress in this first round, weaken it up a little bit and see what happens. Well, guys, I just realized I've been doing it a little wrong on combat, but I think it's forgivable. Basically, when I deal a wound to the enemy, it doesn't reduce the number of cards they flip turn after turn. Although I think it makes sense that if I was doing five cards for the five bandits, every time I took one out, one less card. I think that makes sense. But I just realized every round, 
this rook has five cards no matter what. Yikes. I also just realized I don't think there's multiple rounds. I think I just need to win the majority of the cards flipped. But maybe that's per round until I'm out of wounds. So I think that's fair. As of right now, quick reminder, we have three and three. So if we take five wounds over the course of this fight, we do go down. Here goes. First card flipped for the Rook. Oh my goodness, is a two of clubs. So that is a very low card. It comes out very aggressive and it flings that rock. I think that we are going to, we're obviously going to use one of our fives. And I think I'm going to describe another thing that I've been missing and may have been an issue, may not have come up yet. I'm going to put Marco's five of clubs up against this two of clubs. Now, when I counterattack and I beat the incoming attack and it's the same suit, that's a critical hit. I can come up with how I used my attack to disable my enemy. A critical hit decreases the opponent's remaining attacks by one. So now it only has four attacks per round. That works out really, really well in our favor. This rook scoops up a rock and throws it. And I think Marco is going to, it says here, use a weapon attack. So he has that staff. I think what we decided last time was that his staff is tipped with something that managed to break or stop the rumble magic of the bandit captain. So I think what he does is Marco knows the tip of his staff, which is probably given to him by his parents, is something really rare and strong. And he kind of uses it like a spear and wedges it at this rock and it perfectly snaps it. His staff takes a little bit of the brunt, his arms, you know, go a little numb from the impact, but it splits this rock and it just breaks it around himself. And I think that he's going to continue rushing forward after he splits this rock and runs forward and just cracks this rook's arm from the shores of this reservoir as it does a flyby attack. I think it cracks one of the bits of the arm that grabs onto these rocks. So it can still attack, but it's just not holding them as well. All right, let's see what the next card we flip is. An ace of clubs. So that is the lowest card we can flip. We have a king of clubs. This could be another critical if we wanted. And I think we're going to do that. We're going to put our king of clubs up against this ace of clubs. It is a critical hit. They're going to be down to three attacks per turn because Marco uses this opportunity to crack one of the small little arm bits on this thing that is dangling and he hits it again hits another one of them and it breaks and he's able to jump on and grab onto it this is going oh no this cannot be our boarding attack because we'll never flip higher than a king every time hmm so he i think what he does is he basically disables this thing's arm and now it's going to have to do flyby attacks oh boy this gets three more cards to flip and we only have two more cards of defense so let's see if we can make this interesting a seven of clubs is another weapon attack for this enemy, but it's attempting to pick up these rocks now. It's flying all erratically, and our protagonists have done their scatter maneuvers. So now Berger ran in one direction, Alice ran in the other. Marco has managed to score two very powerful hits with whatever it is he's discovered about his staff doing a lot of damage to the arm of this rook. And... Now it is attempting to swipe. It flies away from Marco to get away from that weapon and is flying towards 
let's say, burger. It flies in a different direction. It turns off and veers. Now, it is attempting to another attack. What it's going to attempt to do is just scoop and toss Burger off the side of this plateau. But Burger has a jack of hearts. Hearts are magic attacks. And what Burger is going to do is go back to the tried and trusted and true ice magic. He is a defensive little rookling with ice magic. And what he does is he pulls a bunch of that water up and out of the reservoir to create kind of a wave and then freezes it in place. So when this thing goes to swipe, it just cracks into a frozen wave and it further damages this arm, which is now just dangling, kind of all messed up. All right. And we have one more card. It has two more cards in this first round. I'm counting the one less attack. Although technically... A critical hit decreases the opponent's remaining attacks by one, and we've done it twice, which would mean their five goes down to three, leaving this five of Alice's, this unarmed attack of Alice's, to just be a free attack. And we've won the majority because we've won them all so far. I think we're going to board with this five of spades. And the plan was for Marco to get in. But I think that it's keeping its distance from Marco. So they're going to have to call an audible. And Marco yells across this reservoir and just goes, Alice, wait, no, I have an idea. And Alice goes, I've heard your idea. I got this. And desperate for adventure, beautiful, daring, perhaps a little reckless. Alice uses this opportunity. It's technically says an unarmed attack. But I think what she's doing is uh, she's going to shoot her rope up and wraps around, she grappling hooks it around this broken arm, and she begins just kind of being pulled in as this thing is flying, and she climbs up, and she is going to be the one climbing inside of this rook. So, we have this round has completed. We have this rook who, maybe it's just for that round. So, we're going to say that they're going to flip five more cards on this next round, but that was for the critical hits were for that round. Technically, we did earn a victory, but because of the goal that we are trying to do here, we broke its arm, which means it can't throw rocks. Technically, if we went back to the Hunter's Guild and said, this thing isn't going to be throwing rocks at your hunters anymore, it might work. But really, Marco has a different plan here. He wants to get inside and he wants to see what he can find out. However, it's going to be Alice now. I'm going to do one more round of combat. That one went very well. Maybe it's dumb. Maybe I don't have to. But Alice is now on the inside. Marco and Berger are on the outside. Alice knows Marco's plan, which is to use those runes, those glyphs that they found on the pillar in the crackways and attempt to see if there's similar design notes or something like that on the inside and attempt to disable this rook from the inside. So we are going to flip our four cards for the combat and we're going to use the fighting inside of a rook rules and we're going to do another round where hopefully during this round alice can disable this rook so our four cards are a five of hearts a four of hearts and a three of spades so marco and burger are in trouble but alice flipped a jack of clubs Technically, with a combat score of five, this massive rook, I'm going to say, has the equivalent of five hit points. Technically, last round, we won all three 
of the turns that we played cards and reduced it with two criticals. So Alice's free attack is a, is a victory. So I think that we only need to win one more round, really, in order to win this thing. So we have our low cards from Marco and Berger here. We have a high card from Alice. We're going to flip a card and we're going to see what that is. If we need to, it could be Alice's overcoming this rook from the inside. Now, it says here, like we talked about before, uh, we need to draw a card to see if we maintain our hold. That card needs to be higher than a 5, which is what we flipped for Alice to get in. And then we need to flip a card for the rook to determine its attack type to get Alice out. So here's the card we're going to flip. We flipped a 10, so Alice maintains her hold and stays inside of the rook, which is great. And now we're going to flip the first card for the rook's attack to attempt to get her out. And then, basically, as long as this is not a jack, queen, or a king, I think we can use Alice's card and say she's going to do this. And I flipped an eight of diamonds. So, according to the attack type, when someone is inside of the rook, it says here, the rook throws itself around and attempt to shake you free from itself or batter you around against its internal walls. This makes tons of sense. This thing is flying. It's going to start zigzagging and, again, erratically flying all over the place. It can't use its little arm that it uses to fling rocks at folks. And it's attempting to jostle Alice around. But Alice has that grappling hook arm. She has kind of tethered herself. And I think we kind of get a scene where Marco is running around outside and we hear him kind of muttering to himself. And he's just like, oh... She doesn't even know where the control panels are. What if she gets caught in a trap? What if there's all these... And he's talking to himself and Berger the whole time is kind of just rumbling and ice magicking all over the place. And this thing starts flying erratically. We see them both look very nervous. And then we cut to the inside. And Alice is staring around at the inside of this rook. And it's just runes and glyphs and levers and traps and engines. And there's steaming pipes and there's cogs and all of this stuff. And she just kind of looks and just goes all right, plan B, and she just snaps off a piece of something on the inside and just starts jamming it into cogs. And then she runs around and she climbs up a ladder into another compartment of this rook and she sees its internal core and it's pulsing with this magic that despite this rook not having a magic type, being an attack thing, it's kind of, I think, it almost looks like an arcane engine or core or something crazy, and she just runs up there, and she grabs something else from off of the floor, and she just jams it into something, and by pure luck, sheerly pure luck, uh, she flipped a jack of clubs. A club is a weapon attack. I think she just... She puts that heavy ball that she used in the fight against the bandits again on the end of her rope, and she just goes like, and this ought to work, and she just launches it into this thing, and it connects, and we get a crash, a cr like a just a crunch, and we hear this and this stutter and this stumble as this flying rook. We go back, we cut back to the outside. Marco and Berger are staring at it. It's flying erratically, and then all of a sudden we see it sputter, and the rocks that are swirling around the bottom of it, kind of like these propellers, uh, just start getting flung all over the place, splashing into the reservoir. One of them goes flying right off the edge of the plateau, sailing down to the canyon, the desert below, before a soft thump. And then we get the splash of this rook as it hits the water. And it is very large. 
Obviously, this reservoir is going to be pretty deep here in this mesa, but I think that it kind of, the momentum pulls it and we get a half-submerged rook kind of tilted, you know, an angle, 45 degree angle or so, and it is just run aground on the shores of this reservoir. And Berger and Marco look at one another and Marco just kind of goes, I can't believe it. And Berger just looks and just shrugs those big boxy hands. What are the chances she followed the plan? And Berger just shakes his little rookling head. And the two of them make their way to reconnect with Alice, who is inside of this disabled and non-responsive rook. Wow, I cannot believe how well that combat went. Holy cow. Those, we got very lucky on draws. We used critical rules, which we hadn't used before, and maybe might have been an issue, but I think that that's a perfect way to introduce them. We critically disabled its one mode of attack, and once Alice got inside using a weapon that is pretty well tailored to boarding a rook, we just got lucky with card flips. And I think we had a rough fight last week. This was supposed to be a very difficult fight, but I think that Again, we talked about how Marco wanted to approach this differently than all of the other hunters who'd gone out here. And I think that it's just, maybe it's luck, maybe it's planning, maybe it's just, I think it's great for the story. What a win. What a cool win. And again, we harvest a weapon from this. I think if Marco's going to be using the helm now, why don't we upgrade Alice's weapon? This thing had a crazy claw arm that could throw things. So I think that basically this is going to be able to be harvested for an arm in the future. It will have to be attached. And it at the moment is, is going to be something that we're going to need to carry back or do something with. But um, that's a cool option. She basically has a third large hand that she can use. I guess Alice is sticking around, guys. I think she's cool. Now, unfortunately, we can't collect the two treasures from the Hunter's Guild until we return there. And actually, there are no, like, quick travel teleport rules in Colossal until you own a home in a town. Then you can fast travel there. So we're going to have to do at least two exploration phases to get back. But I think given how well this fight went, why wouldn't they just keep on moving towards... Marco's quest on the map, right? However, first, let's talk about the potential for what just happened as well. Technically, we've disabled this rook. If we wanted to, we could turn it into what the Roomlands book calls a rook home. We can, if we have the means to ourselves, which we do not, we can turn it back on fully under our control and we would have a flying rook that we could use, which is crazy. However, we don't have the means to do this, so until we can get a rooksmith out here to fix it up for us, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do anything. But we can tell the Hunter's Guild that this rook is here, it's, just, it's disabled, and there's potential. But again, that's going to be until... That's going to have to wait until we get back to Rust Gorge. Now, let's do a quick scene with Alice and Marco and Berger inside of this rook. Marco and Berger crawl through one of the windows in the 
tower of this rook. Maybe it's like what looked like the eyes, right, of this rook. And they crawl in and slide down the sloped wall to the floor and find Alice crawling around in the wreckage of what she has done to the inside of this rook. And Marco just goes, well, that's not how I would have done it, but... And Alice says, are you kidding? I didn't have time. I just did whatever I thought would work, and it worked. And Marco says, it worked. Okay, let's take a look. I'm going to consult the oracles again, and I'm going to see if there's any of that runic language of the rooks on here. I think that it's unlikely, given that hunters take down rooks all the time, and they are scavenged for parts and stuff like that. I think that the crackways was a unique feature of those strange-sized rooks, but just in case, it might be something that was never put together, or maybe there was no kind of Rosetta Stone-like thing. Maybe that's part of what Marco and Alice found in the crackways, but we might as well consult the oracles and see. Again, if we flip a red card, that is a no, and there are degrees within that, and if we flip a black card, that is yes, and there are degrees within that. So the question is, are there any unique rook-like runes within this? It looks like the rook language, not whatever it is the people of the rune lands use. I flipped a red card, which is a no, but I flipped a queen, which says no, but there is an upside. So what would that upside be? I think no with an upside means there are no runes like the ones that Marco and Alice found in the in the crackways. But I think this is a trove of information for Marco. Maybe Burger reacts. Maybe Burger knows how things work in here. And yeah, we'll say that. There's an upside. What they were looking for isn't there, but that doesn't mean there isn't information. And Burger basically leads Marco to places to understand how rooks function. Obviously, rook stones and pieces are scavenged and used all the time by the people of the Roomlands, but I think that Berger has obviously a different kind of understanding of it all than any of the humans of the Roomlands would. So Berger and Marco kind of take inventory of this entire interior of the rook and Marco's starting to get a better picture of what rooks really are and with that information I think that actually I think that where is a safer place to stay than inside of a disabled rook that is known to be a dangerous place for hunters and people of the canyon lands so I think that we're going to spend another night here. I think that Marco and Alice, they obviously have fresh water here in the reservoir. They maybe go out and they do a little hunting or something like that to get some food. They have supplies, etc. And we're going to, we didn't loot, we didn't take a single wound. So we can get our exploration score back up to four and our combat score is already at a max of three. So I think that uh, what we'll do is instead of what we've done in the past and end this session with an exploration phase, we will start next time with an exploration phase as Marco, Berger, and Alice venture further into the Canyonlands. Despite the warning from Yaleris, the hunter, 
who warned them to back off. Because Marco needs to know what this familial map is all about. Thank you so much for joining me for a third straight week of playing with myself on the internet with Colossal. I'm having an absolute blast with this game. I think it is cute. It is suspenseful, flipping cards. I know in a previous episode of Modified Roles, Christian let everyone know how he feels about it, but I really think flipping cards here, you know, 52 cards in a deck where suit and number matter, the odds of flipping what you need, I think, are probably equivalent or even smaller than a d20 or something like that. So, yes, we don't get the click-clack of math rocks, but I'm having plenty of fun just flipping cards here. So, again, let me know what you think a good length for this is. I think maybe after Marco has gotten across the Canyonlands and discovers the truth of at least one of these glyphs, that's probably where I'm going to call it for Colossal, and we'll move on to a different game for the solo series. But reach out to us on social media if you want to chime in. Let us know what you think of what we're doing or what you'd like to see us do in the future, what you'd like to hear us talk about on Modified Roles, which will be coming back shortly in 2023, as well as shenanigans we can get up to in Sarah's 1D6, 1D4 Chaos Baby, or anything. Just talk to us. Come chat. Uh, We are going to be hopefully setting up a Discord soon so we can all chat there. Uh, We have some merch in the makings. Uh, We are working on a website. So there's going to be plenty of places you can reach out and find us and talk to us. And if not, you can always just email us at dmsafterdark at gmail.com. We love hearing from people and getting back to them. And we share the messages we get with everyone. And we chat about it. And we're like, oh my god, people like us. They really like us. As Sarah would say, we need attention and we thrive off it or we will wither or something. Um, I guess that's it. I guess in this one, I'm sorry I didn't get beat up more. I was really expecting to get beat up more. But you know what? Until next time, don't beat yourself up. Have a wonderful night. And a happy new year, because I will not see or talk to you or anything like that until 2023. So may you ring in the new year on the best of notes. Bye, guys.